0: We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello, and welcome back to Research Recast the, the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Brittany Eklund, and today we have a little bit of a switch up. Dylan could not be here, unfortunately, so instead, I have Megan in here with me to co-host, and you will get to know her a little bit uh, better later, spoiler
1: alert, but uh, yeah, Megan. Hi there, I'm Megan, and today Brittany and I are here with Dr. Anna Azulai. Uh, Dr. Azulai is an associate professor in the School of Social Work at McEwan University. She began her appointment in 2017 and she teaches courses on addiction, human behaviour, social work, in health and mental health settings and field practicum. Anna is a clinical social worker, registered with the Alberta College of Social Workers and the Board of Behavioural Sciences in California. Her research interests span residential care for people with chronic health and mental health conditions, mental health and ageing gerontological social work, and interprofessional practice.
0: Today, we're going to talk about a project titled It Is Not Only About Staying Alive, a living systematic review of social care strategies for older adults in residential care facilities during the COVID-19 pandemic. Anna, thank you so much for being with us here today. Good morning, everyone. So, you know, this is something we ask everybody, um, and I'm particularly interested uh, in how you came to be involved in social work um, and specifically what inspires you about the field and working with older people and long-term care?
2: Well, it was a little bit of a journey for me. Uh, I started my uh, professional career when I was very young. I was 18 and I had very little idea. Uh, back then, what social work is. um, Like many of our students, I wanted to help people to make the world a little bit better place, but how and what needs to be done, right? That was uh, quite a mystery and, uh, well, it remains uh, today up to a degree. Uh, But then, you know, when you study and you are getting exposed to the field and it's very vast, like many people do not know what social work really is. It's kind of a very vague um, discipline, Uh, but it's not really very vague when you get into that because, um, you know, we are like we we are um, holistic beings. Right. Uh, And it's easy to talk about our bodies and body needs. And that's all concrete kind of thing. But above that, we also need relationships. We need our uh, social environment to uh, be happy and be well, right, and enjoy our lives and so on. And this social aspect, this is the field where the social work um, flourishes and develops, right? And it's uh, very diverse. So by nature of the profession, we work with varieties of population from very young age to very old, like across the lifespan. And uh, we, um, we are tasked as a profession to help people improve their well-being, which is quite w- vague, right? But like doctors are tasked to help us to be healthy and well in physical terms oftentimes. And it is expanding now because we recognize more and more the holistic nature of human phenomenon, right? Uh, social workers uh, are into the social aspect, but we also get more and more involved and in recognizing the importance of physical being right and our bodies and how it interacts with our social well-being and cultural presence and spiritual well-being and so on so that's that's what we do in social work at least we try like I, I think that that's the main point of the profession is to aspire to improve the well-being of people but also to focus more on social justice and specifically on people who may have uh, less opportunities than others for a variety of circumstances and sometimes these are psychosocial and sometimes these are environmental and structural as well right because we do not live in a vacuum no right and that all impacts us as human beings, and we do not have equal opportunities uh, even when we are born and so social workers uh focus on helping people who really kind of are trying but cannot do that because of a variety of barriers and removing these barriers is important to allow everyone to have this equal opportunity to prosper and be well. Absolutely.
0: So you know that's that's kind of your journey into social work um, but the work we're going to talk about specifically today is you know, residential care facilities and older adults. Um, and you have done, you did your doctoral dissertation on um, depression, I think, in in older people. So how did you branch from this huge kind of over-encompassing body of work that is social work? Um, and what drew you towards, you know, gerontological work in particular? Well,
2: that was a I think that it was guided by my personal exposure to the field. When I was younger and I was a student, we did practicum. uh, And uh, my practicum was mostly with children and families. And uh, we kind of, um, it it was, you know, like in any profession, especially in uh, in, uh, health and mental health settings, we do have in our professions fields that are, Uh, more desirable, let's say, right? And youth and care and mental health, these all are very um, attractive fields. And I was driven to that as well. Uh, when I graduated though when I graduated with my bachelor degree uh, I found found a job in addictions and then in uh, family services and within the family services there was a department where I was placed right uh, which was with uh, serving older adults so I kind of uh, ended there quite circumstantially I didn't know much about the population except for my grandparents right but other than that nothing really and I was very young as well. Um, and learning about older adults—that what got me fascinated because I've discovered the whole different world. I've discovered how we all are actually aging from the very beginning when we were born, right? That older adults are not a different um, population. Let's say it's just us getting on in years, and we um, we have personalities, we have needs. Nothing ends; it just continues and. Uh, but the supports, the supports and understanding of the old age is not very high in our society, unfortunately. We're kind of really youth-oriented, a lot, um, and we uh, romanticize youth uh, and we aspire to look youthful and all that, right? And then uh, the older you get. Um, it, Sometimes older people find themselves on the margins, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and even if you look into research, you will um, notice how uh, older people talk about becoming invisible all of, all of a sudden. Right? They, they, their needs are not—they're just literally invisible. That people do not pay attention uh, too much, uh, even on, when you are in um, on streets or you know getting places and so on. Uh, and that got me um, really interested and uh, also touched my heart back then. I remember that I was discovering the whole world. And then uh, later in my career, I've um, I've done my master's and it evolved. I had many questions. I went to study to find out what's going on and how to bridge practice and research and policy and all of that. Um, and I started to work in long-term care facilities after my master's and, and uh, home health as well, and both were with older adults. And so there I have discovered how complex the road of care uh, of well, social workers, especially those with chronic health and mental health conditions is, how fascinating it is from a learner perspective, because I grew, uh, my knowledge grew exponentially there. And not only because I was studying, but because I was exposed to interprofessional teams and now I had to work with nurses and physicians and occupational therapists. Everyone is coming with a wealth of knowledge um, from other disciplines that I didn't have. right? And so this exchange, I think, was very, very enriching for me. Um, and served me well in helping older adults because you need this um, holistic perspective on, on a human being in order to understand what's going on and how you can best help them. Absolutely.
0: Um, you know, mental health, you mentioned, and and this feeling of disappearing and things like that, you're right. Mental health is becoming a topic that's more discussed in the mainstream. And I think that that's fantastic. But again, it's really focused on adults. And I think during the pandemic, children, um, because of obviously rising rates of mental health issues in younger people. But the focus in my experience is not usually on seniors. Um, so can you talk a little bit um, about what some of the unique challenges are for older people and what mental health conditions like affect them the most?
2: Well, there are some specific conditions that uh, we make wire with older age. Uh, but I think that the main uh, thing to keep in mind is that uh, Again, it's not a different, separate population that has this. They they do have their separate needs. But the first and foremost, uh, these are people who have been living all their lives. So naturally, everything that you acquire stays with you and it accumulates um, during your life, right? So that can be uh, your experiences in life. It can be uh, any traumatic experiences that can happen. It can be relational challenges that happen. And then with age also um, physical ailments can come, right? Our body doesn't function the same way. Uh, Our sensors are not the same and so on. And some people can develop chronic conditions as well, with which they need to cope and live with. And this all different uh, pan of disability also answer, uh, you know, uh, is added for some people. And other people uh, were born with disabilities and lived with disabilities and age with disabilities as well. So, older adults is a very heterogeneous group. It's not one. They, they have different needs, different segments, different cultural orientations. Mm. Right? They're very diverse. It's very rich uh, population in so many aspects. So it's, it's difficult for me to, to answer your question, if you see, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, fair enough. But some specific, maybe if you kind of look into what really comes with age, right? The two most um, uh, common um, prevalent um, mental health conditions that we see with older adults is uh, dementia and depression. And dementia is a neurological condition, right? But it does have this mental health manifestations as well that can be added, and depression. And then we do have anxiety uh, that also is near there, uh, like statistically speaking. Um, And then there are also people with other um, mental health conditions that have developed uh, before, like schizophrenia, for example, and the age they they get on in years with this condition Really? Yeah. That's interesting because
0: like from what I know about schizophrenia, usually onset is in your teen or early, you know, 20s. But it's interesting to know that you know, there's also another manifestation that can develop as you get older.
2: It can, right? But uh, mostly schizophrenia develops in teen, but you can age with that, right? So when oh. people cope with that, if the, uh, you know, the variety of approaches, and of course there is um, um, pharmacological uh, approaches like medications when they work for people and people learn to live with, uh, with the condition, right? And function with that. And if things uh, work well, you can age with that. So mm-hmm. it doesn't disappear, but it just complicates other things that can come with older age, right? Okay. Right? So it's so how it interacts with other conditions. also interacts with, also other, interacts conditions. with okay. other conditions as well, right?
1: So I really liked what you said, Anna, um, about the complex needs uh, of the geriatric population. So one thing that stuck with me because I used to work in the healthcare field and I worked with all sorts of populations, but mainly geriatric. Um, and I really like when you talked about how the multi brought so much knowledge towards you, but I also, I, I also feel for you as a working, a practicing social worker at that time, not only being new to your field, um, but now learning that there's so much more to your, your patient population than you probably had initially anticipated there would be. Um, so just leading into our next question um can you walk us through your research uh, that you did on uh, on COVID-19 and long-term care facilities?
2: Yes, absolutely. All right. So it it wasn't uh, it, it was very fascinating and um not only it was actually quite worrisome for me to see what is happening and unfolding in long-term care facilities with uh during the pandemic. I was not surprised. Um uh, that that would have been happening, right? Because um, I I did my doctoral dissertation on uh, geriatric depression and long-term care. And when that was happening in, you know, in early, um, I think 2015, 16, when I was uh, collecting the data back then, um, I've become exposed to so many challenges that we have in Canada, in terms of long-term care um, and the, lack of services. And I must say that uh, the staff, the people, multidisciplinary staff in long-term care facilities really are aspiring to help people that really want. But there is just so much you can do, right, if you don't have enough resources and staff and so on. Now, when you know that these are the barriers, that these barriers are well researched, you have actually a wealth of research body and knowledge about the functioning of long-term care in Canada and what we need in terms of, let's say, ratios between the staff and and residents in order to provide this multiple complex care you know that we are already behind and then COVID-19 happens Yeah, and we lose staff. And And just to throw another wrench, yeah. (laughs) And then guess what is happening with the care? And then the other uh, part of it was that uh, families are a huge resource for the lack of stuff sometimes in long-term care facilities. But also if you think about that, almost 90% of residents in long-term care are people who have some kind of cognitive challenges. Um, sometimes behavioral challenges are there families know their um, loved ones best and so they are the huge resource in long-term care to come and support then COVID happened and we had restrictions and families cannot come anymore and we don't have staff enough right so this is a dire situation I just can't even imagine how it can be for a person who is absolutely dependent on staff for their basic needs and then not having it and having less and less and then not having anyone that you love to come and support you, right? So it was a very challenging situation and knowing that and witnessing that, uh, there was this idea that we probably need to look into what is going on because I I, I do believe that the staff who remained in facilities really tried Mm-hmm. They try to do their best, and so I have become curious to know what did they do, how did they cope uh, with the situation, uh, how, what are the strategies that they um, uh, come up with, right? And naturally, because I'm a social worker, then I'm looking into psychosocial strategies that... Um, interest me Um, and looking maybe there are some innovations right why not because and sometimes in times of challenge we can become quite creative uh, with solutions right so what it is we have discovered what it is we do uh, that may be working uh, in in crisis uh, so that we may learn from and maybe even adopt looking forward So that was the main idea behind this project, and then uh, we have got uh, the funding from Shark, so that was great. Uh, And I must say that that's um, it's not. uh, We do not collect data in facilities. It's yeah, yeah, right. I was going to ask about
0: your methodology and kind of you know how Mm -hmm. you how you got your data.
2: Yeah, it's a living systematic review. So because we it's very new because we don't have a lot of data and research. It's everything kind of developing right now. One of the uh, approaches to um, learn about what is happening right now in the research world, right, and the practice world as well, is to learn and synthesize the uh, knowledge that is already available, like systematic reviews, for example, right? It's a very methodical collection of literature, uh, comprehensive, um, uh, and then you um, look what is what is there and what are the gaps. Right. So basically, that's the idea. So in, uh, we have a team, uh, right? Uh, Dr. Hong Mei Tong from uh, the School of Social Work, associate professor with, with me, uh, a co applicant. And uh, we also have uh, Miss Allison uh, Pitcher, who is our librarian and who is very instrumental in this study. Um, and we also have Beverly Balliot, who is a new graduate uh, in social work and she's a research assistant uh, on the study as well. So that's my team. Uh, And we are in the process. So we haven't yet um, uh, finalized our findings because it's a living systematic Mm -hmm. review. It's a new methodology in systematic reviews where you need to collect your data once, but then you need to collect it again and see what are the new developments. uh, And then you collect it again. And And so there are circles of
0: it. (laughs) (laughs) And I theoretically, like the pandemic is not over. So, you know, how long do you plan on collecting data for?
2: Uh, well, for to be feasible, right? We mm-hmm. also need to uh, budget-wise uh, for the fund and also feasibility of the team. So we we are collecting three times. So we are done with the first one. We, have, we are finishing the second uh, search right now. And we do have some preliminary ideas already from the first search and analysis of the first search, what's what's coming up. But of course, there will be surprises <laughs> down the road because we have more and more knowledge. And if you think about the publication cycle, right, everything that we have collected last year was just the beginning. But then the, the, the whole two years of pandemics probably is the second search that we are collecting now. And then later around May, probably somewhere, maybe, maybe July in summer, we will collect the third time. And that will be uh, the end of these two years, right? So we're kind of looking into this uh, cycle to understand whatever is coming our way so we will have a, more, um, a better picture, with, uh, I hope, by that time. Yeah, yeah,
0: and I do want to talk a little bit just about kind of some preliminary ideas and, and definitely what you've noticed between the first and second collection. But, you know, when the pandemic, the first year of it um, across Canada there was really kind of this shock because people were hearing about what was happening in long-term care, especially in places like Ontario where a lot of long-term care facilities are privatized. Um, And it was just, you know, the military is being sent in to try to help these people and families are frustrated and they can't get in. And, you know, but now you do not really hear about what's going on. So Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what's changed between the two years and and what the situation kind of looks like in long-term care with COVID right now?
2: That's a good question. Uh, But I think that nothing new, if you ask me, is happening. Uh, As far as I remember, because the uh, the in long term care was not new, not for uh, practitioners, uh, neither for practitioners, nor for researchers, right before pandemic, and only the public has become exposed to the problem. But now, when the um, we are, you know, no restrictions, right? We are coming back to um, the new normal or normal, however (laughs) people define it. I don't know, right? Uh, things are coming back to the same, and we uh, we are accustomed not to talk about long term care facilities in in this society at all. I mean that's that's the invisible population that we are talking about, which is quite concerning to me because uh, not only we have uh, the growing aging population in Canada and not only in Canada, right it's a global. Phenomena, mm-hmm. but in Canada, definitely we are. And if you think about in a couple of decades, twenty-five uh, percent of Canadians will be older adults. But also the segment of the older population that require care, those with chronic health and mental health conditions, this segment is growing. We have about uh, probably five to six percent right now in long-term care facilities. Out of older adults, we are expected to have uh, eleven, about eleven, in about a decade. Right? It's a gr- Financial growth. We do not catch up with long-term care um, settings in terms of the bed capacity. Yeah. Uh, of course, certainly not about the care needs, right? The diversity of long-term of of older adult population, right? And so that's all is very concerning. And when I think about why is it happening, well, I might be biased, <laughs> right? We all have some kind of bias, but I definitely think that there is a grain of ageism there. Uh, to me because we we don't like to talk about old age in society we kind of don't like it maybe we are scared of it I don't know what's exactly the reason like we all age I mean that's the truth we cannot bypass it I think that we we can be very lucky if we get into this position being old right Uh, not everyone has this luck right unfortunately uh, but we don't we 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 avoid talking about it, right? And it is generally in the population. And uh, if you look into research, it's definitely not getting as much traction as we do have about youth and mental health and addiction, right? Things all important, uh, all are important. But so is and the old age and the needs of older adults.
0: What you know? What can we do? And and. Long-term care in Alberta is provincially funded.
2: Or is it's, it a combo? It's it's a it's a complex uh, it's a complex system, right? Uh, we do have uh, a constellation of um, public facilities. We do have private facilities. We do have private facilities with publicly funded beds, okay. like the designated supportive living settings, right? It's like assisted living, but within the long term care. Like, no, it's like long term care within the assisted living settings, right? The other way around. Um, and then we have private facilities that are governed by different laws, like long-term care has the Nursing Home Act and uh, assisted living are governed by a different legislation. So it's very complex. And I think that one of the challenges also is that our Canadian um, Health Act that we are very proud of and there are many reasons to be proud of our universal health care. But the challenge with that is that it was um, um, created um, several decades ago, like in the 80s. And uh, we have evolved in terms of the population needs and what we require. And so long-term care is not defined in that act as an essential health service. Back then, Older people were able to drive to long-term care, right? These uh, these days we are having very very old and sick population in long-term care facilities that really require twenty four seven support on all sides. And so, uh, if we if you think about hospital being an essential care, then long-term care today are not very different in terms of the care needs, right? But it's not essential, and so the funding system is very different then. Yeah.
0: Well, we are going to take a quick break here soon, uh, but not quite yet, um, because I just want to touch on, you know, the study a little bit more. Can you speak about, you know, what you've you found in your last kind of two data collections about how the restrictions put in place to save or protect people in long term care um, affected them?
2: Well, if you think from the um, uh, preventing the spread of disease, right? It did some good, but not how we expected it to happen, right? If you look at the proportion or, or the statistics in, uh, in the world, right? We, uh, with all our restrictions, still had Canada, I mean, depending on what source you are looking at, um, there are different numbers, but all of them actually point to the significant proportion of older adults uh, who uh, died in long-term care during the pandemic, unfortunately, regardless of all the restrictions that we put in place uh, and the quite severe social ramifications that these restrictions, um, you know, ended up with. So, uh, yeah, so, so we are not as good as some other countries. Even if you compare it to the United States, they have um, less uh, people who were dying in facilities with the same restrictions and so on. And some of the research points on to the fact how fast the restrictions occurred uh, in terms of what these restrictions were exactly. Was it like PPE, wearing PPE? Was it restricting staff working in one facility or several facilities and so on and so forth? So there are many variations between the countries how um, this was um, created, designed, and implemented. And so the results are uh, not very good. But then, yes, you are kind of saving lives, and which is a good thing, right? Because we want to save lives and we want to help people to survive. And with that, um, when you think about long-term care, for many people, this is their last home due to the health conditions and so on. And the quality of life, therefore... Uh, is very important. It, not, it is not like a hospital visit where you come and then in two weeks you are uh, discharged, you can come back home. It, that, that's your home and the environment, all of it, the social environment, spiritual environment, cultural environment, all that is very, very important. The social determinants of health are very important. While When you do the restrictions, it really restricts not only the Physical distance, it also restricts the capacity of people to have relationships, uh, to get connected, uh, to um, um, be right? To be there as a human being, right? To um, uh, ex- the social exchange, to talk with people, to uh, communicate with them. Even touch, you know, uh, in uh, yeah. geriatric care, when you have older adults, uh, sensory limitations sometimes occur. And so people may not see very well, not hear very well. And touch is important, right? So you take someone by hand and you help a person to uh get places and so on, so this, uh, this physical connection is important. Now that also gone, right, um, to a degree. Um, yeah, and I think that that's uh, why we, uh, I think that what, what got us thinking about um, naming our research, right, it's not only about um, um, living, surviving, right, staying alive. Uh, we need more as human beings. Um, to think about and, and, and sustain our life in, in high quality of it.
0: Yeah, I think not having access to family, which, I mean, as you mentioned, like family can be a huge advocate group for people in long term care. So, not, you know, that must be so difficult for people to be scared and alone and not.
2: Absolutely, especially when we had uh, so many people dying in facilities with families not being able to come.
0: Yeah. And be with
2: them during this time. Right. That can be absolutely devastating, not only for the person who is passing away, but also for the families who remain. Uh, so there is a lot of grief in these facilities that, again, we are not talking about. Right. Yeah. It's 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 something that uh, is invisible. Uh, and as such, we don't talk notice it. Right.
0: One hundred percent. Well, we're going to take a short break here.
1: Well, guys, the leaves are starting to change, it's getting colder out there, and winter is right around the corner. Luckily, Edmonton has Brew & Bloom, a cafe that offers a wonderful menu of goodies in addition to being surrounded by flowers, that's right, all year round. You can go and see it for yourself at 105th Avenue and 115th Street, just a hop, skip, and a jump behind McEwen University. All right, so we're back. Um, Anna, uh, it's been really lovely talking with you about all the wonderful research that you've done in these long-term care facilities. Um, I kind of want to go back to uh, something that, um, something else that you that you mentioned. So you studied ageism within social work, and you talked a bit about that with us at the beginning of the podcast. Um, can you walk us through a bit of a bit of this work and sort of some things that you've noticed?
2: Well I cannot say that I studied ageism per se i have I've I've written an article on that, right? On ageism body <laughs> and social work, that's that's true. Um, uh, but when you are working in the field with older adults, you cannot bypass ageism. It's just impossible, right? You notice it and you, you wonder what's going on. And when you start looking into that more in detail in terms of the practice, you talk to people, you talk to older adults, uh, like I did in my social work capacity in long-term care facilities and home health um, social worker, right? You have lots of, um, you're collecting stories. Uh, literally right because this is a part of the job in social work you take time to listen to people because otherwise you cannot understand them really that's my that's my thinking all right <laughs> and then when you listen to the stories uh, that there with the stories of invisibility of barriers of uh, how challenging uh, old age is, is really not only because Uh, Of the body ailments, right, that naturally uh, you know are a hassle and a a challenge to cope with and live with, and a lot of losses this way as well, but also the societal barriers, right, and the way how people look at you, how they talk to you, even because even the style of communication when you talk to older adults uh, in our society changes, right, and sometimes there is this infantilizing happening. Uh, And sometimes uh, people talk about the heads of an older adult. If there is someone younger nearby, right? You turn and you talk to a a, a key children, right? And then you don't talk to the person themselves as if they already are not capable to express themselves, right? All these kind of assumptions, right, that we do sometimes without um, malicious intent, I would say, right? But it's such a deeply ingrained bias in our society, I would say, that... Uh, really um, finds the way not only in terms of how we treat people in old age, how we communicate with them, what kind of policies uh, do we design, what kind of services, how available they are, and whether we prioritize older adults in budget allocations because that's also priorities. Do we find them worthy, right, relatively to others who are, all these considerations that you do as policymakers and, uh, and, and, and even in, uh, at the level of the long-term care, right, in your, um, in, in, in municipalities, right? It happens everywhere. Or uh, how many students in social work do we have who are really interested to work with older adults? And I usually talk to my students, and I say, like, because they are just beginning their careers, right? So, looking at the uh, at the market, right, and understanding who you will probably be working with. So, if you look at research, we have three main trends. They, pro- they will be, um, they will definitely have some uh, people with addictions in their caseload. They will most likely have some people with mental health in their caseload, and they definitely will have some older adults in their caseload. If you look at numbers, right. And we have a lot of tractions in both addictions and mental health and very little and uh, in older adults. Mm-hmm. While you do need to know about old age and the needs that are specific to this group, uh, on top of everything else, uh, right, uh, and how to communicate and how to meet the needs as well. It's very complex as we, uh, as, we as we have talked before. Um, yeah, so uh, I was curious uh, before I was writing that, that article, when I have become curious about ageism, I was curious whether do we have it in social work because we are quite attuned to bias. We are quite attuned to social justice. We do know about intersectional um, discrimination, oppression, and that what is happening, right? And uh, I was kind of hoping that we might not have I use them in social work, (laughs) right? A wishful thinking, but no, data says different things, all right? And so we do have it because we are human beings and we are living... Uh, in the society that has this bias and it would be only surprising not to see it making the way into our profession as well. We do have it a little bit less. We do have uh, more um, I would say than than the general if you compare the profession to the general population right so it is less rampant but it's still there and it is quite comparable to what happens with other professional schools like if you think nursing and and, and physicians right Um, you do have similar trends, like, for example, geriatric psychiatry is less popular than just psychiatry, or gerontological nursing is less popular than nursing, and so gerontological social work is less popular than social work, right? So we have this parallel trends in different health and mental health uh, professions that um, probably explain what is happening, right? We are still um, battling with ageism, and we are still experiencing it.
0: I mean, it's such a huge part of our society Um, from basically, if you're not, I don't even know what the age is now, 35, (laughs) but like, you know, it's everywhere it's in the media, you're confronting it every day. So, you know, when you have these, these populations going into any system, I imagine that you can't help but carry some of that forward, even if you're in a compassionate, holistic profession like social work. So, you know... Kind of what are some of the things that happen um, when ageism interferes in social work? What are the effects of those attitudes when it comes to carrying out the core objectives of what is trying to be accomplished?
2: Well, I think that, you know, it's very difficult. Um, I think we all have bias, right? It's really perhaps not very realistic uh, to expect that we are not going to have any. We are human beings. That happens, uh, stereotyping happens automatically, right? But I think that part of it probably is misinformation um, uh, to a degree, not only, but some misinformation about older age being um, equal with uh, not being. Um, beautiful, right, or not being healthy, which is not true at all, right, so the proportion of people who really require um, substantial care is very tiny among older adults. Uh, the majority are quite independent people who take care of themselves and live their lives, and you know, uh, and 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 trying to uh, enhance their quality of life with everything that comes. So our understanding of old age is like someone who is very dependent, probably not hearing well, not 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 seeing anything, and probably losing their mental capacities as well, right? So this kind of portrait. Um, that make people uh, become a little bit worried uh, around or un- uncomfortable, uh, not knowing what to do, not know how to speak. Uh, so this misinformation, the one play in, uh, on the one hand, uh, and and then yes, this little microaggressions, I would say, right, that we have uh, in terms of. Um, Um, prejudice and discrimination. Like prejudice is more about attitudes, right? So negative attitudes about old age that you can see. If you go to any store, right, and you look at the greeting cards and you look at the section of the birthdays, right, that's fascinating to see what happens when you are turning like 65 and 70 and what people write about. it. just uh, take a look. It's really, it's funny on the one hand, but then it backfires on the other, right? You're you're, you're hysterically laughing sometimes there, What but, but then you think about, oh, oh my goodness, but that's not exactly what is happening. You have sometimes perfectly well-functioning, fantastic human beings who are in full capacities, who are bring wealth of experience, right? They are uh, professionals. They have wealth of experience to share. They can be uh, great mentors to, to younger people. We don't we don't use, we don't utilize this uh, asset in our yeah. society at all. And, to, and I think that that's such a, such a shame for us. Maybe it will change with the years. I don't know. I'm hopeful, <laughs> right? But they kind of, we are, we are losing all this population with all the wealth that they have accumulated, right? Thinking about them as less uh, of, of what they actually are, right? So quite, quite sad there.
1: Well, and it's not even, it's not even like we're losing them, but more or less we're sweeping them under the rug, which is, which is a shame. You know, it's, it's as if, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned earlier in your, in the conversation that uh, um, sometimes if there's a younger person around, you know, the physicians or the care, care people at the, at the homes will look to them, look over the heads of the patients. Um, And it's, it's as if they're losing their sense of agency without, you know, without any of their own consent, like they could be perfectly sound, body and mind, you know, and it's just once you hit a certain age there, there it goes. Everybody's decided that you've been written off. And
0: well, it's so a very I think like, cultural thing. As it well. is rooted um, in the culture for sure. And I think that there's really interesting kind of projects and, and practices, like traditional practices in other countries. For example, you know, multi-generational housing where a big family, grandparents, you know, take care of the children while the adults go work or pilots in other countries that combine, um, daycare centers into like assisted living facilities. And they really, Mm -hmm. you get to give both of those pop, the whole population benefits because parents get childcare, the children get to learn from the older adults and the older adults are given responsibility and the ability to interact and be, you know, important and show that importance. So.
2: And and frankly speaking, to be honest and fair, we do have these pockets of success here in Canada in terms of the in, intergenerational placement. We, are. we there were some pilot um, um, experiments, so to speak, in BC done with um, you know invited, having childcare and. A long-term care facility in one uh, in one uh, building, and mm-hmm. so both both generations benefit, right, with this intergenerational um, exchange and relationships yeah. and so on. So we have we have pockets of success, uh, and I think that it is gaining gain, gaining traction. And we do have a high awareness among prof, uh, uh, physicians uh, these days in, in terms of uh, ageism, in terms of really uh, more person-centered care and family-centered care, right? There is there is more education coming this way. And of course, nursing, um, they also have, um, they are kind of uh, really developing into that and and promoting uh, person-centered care and so on. And with that, we still have uh, challenges. We are still there. So it's because it's so, you know, when you think about ageism, it's so deeply ingrained that you need to start from the very young age in order to change uh, perspectives and attitudes. It's very difficult to do when you're already an adult to change your whole worldview on yeah. a number of things. It's possible, right? We are doing it um, at schools, right? When we teach, we are trying to really uh, shape, reshape, help people to realize some things that we have never been exposed to. Because it's really, you know, if you think about it, we all come from different walks of life, and we had different experiences. And these experiences, and um, you know, uh, our background—what we call social location, right—that all impacts the way that we see things, uh, that, that what we know, even, right? And so we respond to what we know, and we look at things how we learned to look at them, uh, right? But that can be challenged just a little bit, right? It can invite people to uh, become exposed to other knowledge, to other ideas, to other opinions, other realities. Uh, and that can help change the perspective as well. And that that is happening, I see it in my students. It's really heartwarming uh, to see that uh, openness uh, to um, uh, different realities in this world, right? We are not living in one, in my opinion. Absolutely.
0: Well, I mean, that brings us almost to the end, but we really do want to leave the floor with you. So if there's anything that we didn't ask about um, or that you would like to mention um, about your work or, you know, how we can make the world a better place for older people, (laughs) this is the time.
2: Well, there are so many things that we can make uh, different, right? So starting from ourselves, first of all, right? Really trying to learn a little bit more about the older population and... Uh, And sometimes exposure can help. This is what I'm finding when you meet someone uh, another person, let's say an older adult, and you create relationship with this person, it's, it's, it's already not very possible to have some prejudices against, right? It really shapes, connections and relationships really change the way that we think about um, other people. So uh, learning about others, right, that would be, but all, also not only that, I think that we, the, 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 if there, is, there is a possibility always to advocate just a little bit. To improve um, if you think about long term care, right? We do need some improvements. We can we, we, we need to Talk about it. We cannot swipe it under the rug. We cannot just let it be because, uh, well, you never know. We can be in these facilities, <laughs> and people age faster than they think they do. Uh, so it's uh, it's it's the future. Uh, and the other thing that I think is very important is that sometimes uh, societies are judged by how we treat our uh, elders. And uh, we need just more. We need more. We need respect and we need to cherish people who, um, who brought us to this road. right? Uh, I do not know why we don't think about it uh, uh, differently. I
0: mean, that's uh, a whole nother study. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me here. It is my honor and pleasure.
0: It was a genuine honor and pleasure to have you as well. Mm-hmm. Megan, would you like to take us out?
1: Yes. Uh, So thank you again, Anna. Uh, It was a pleasure. Lovely to speaking with you. That's it for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you would like to support this podcast, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow or send a message if you have any follow up questions from today's episode. This has
0: been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund and today by Megan Miskiman and Renette Schaubert as well. Music and sound design are by Dylan Cave. Engineering and editing are by Renette Schaubert with research, copy editing and scripting by me, Brittany Eklund and Megan Miskiman. Our executive producer is Ray Bury.